is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first jobs, what it was, what they learned, how it helped them get to where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Today's story is about Shahid Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan who is now a billionaire, thanks to this country and the opportunity it gave him, which he's since spread to more people, employing over 13,000 Americans at his company Flexengate, which we'll hear about more later. He also owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not bad for an immigrant. In this first clip, which we got from Forbes and some of the terrific interviews they conduct there, we learn that he's 16 years old and decides to attend the University of Illinois. This is back in 1967. And when he arrives, he arrives in the middle of a blizzard. Indeed, it's the first time he's ever seen snow. And walking through that snow in Champaign, Illinois, to the local YMCA, his shoes start falling apart, was he ever wondering whether he'd just made, at this moment in his life, a big mistake? It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this. And uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes um, and you go through the socks, I mean, I have that to this day (laughs) where I'm hardwired, I can sense something like that. But, uh, and... It, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's, uh, there ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said, <laughs> they were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour. And I said, you know, this can really, this is going to be great. And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day and thinking, my God, what a great country, Uh, because I am making more than 99.9% of the people in Pakistan. And then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. There's got to be a pony somewhere. I just love that. I love that attitude. So he graduates at 21 with a mechanical engineering degree. While at Champaign at the University of Illinois, he meets his bride. But this was a pretty tough time economically, even for a guy with an engineering degree. And remember, he's an immigrant from Pakistan, so he has to hit the pavement. Let's take a listen to more. Uh, you know, in the 70s when there was no connectivity, obviously, uh, email or how you got your resume out. I mean, I literally, I went door to door because, um, you know, I was a foreign student, but you could work legally in those days for 18 months. Uh, and I would start off in the morning uh, just going door to door industrial parks and what have you. And I did that for several months. Uh, and then uh, one day, uh, this blacksmith shop, of all places in Urbana, uh, was looking for somebody to come in and do everything. Uh, uh, weld, grind, and, you know, I was able to get the job. 
At the blacksmith he worked for, they designed custom trucks for farmers, one-offs. Shahid says that's how trucks were sold in those days, and they used to weld all these parts together. And the owner, who was a farmer, asked himself, could they do this better? Shahid came up with the idea of using stamping presses to make a one-piece uniform bumper. It looked a lot better. You didn't have the seams from welding. It lasted a lot longer, and it had a lot lower cost. And from that one idea, the owner said that he made more money in one year than the 40 years he worked in the field as a farmer and decided that he needed to sell the business. Then in 1978, when the second energy crisis hit the auto industry, Shahid decided that the real market opportunity was selling direct to the car makers, and he started his own company. He started out by employing just one other person. The auto industry was not very receptive to smaller companies, and they would look at designs and they say, okay, we'll pay you and, uh, you know, use some of those. But uh, uh, GM was coming up with a small truck. This is in 78 because the energy crisis had hit. And I had a, they had missed the weight target, and the guy uh, was about to get fired. So at a, as a really act of desperation, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this design, authorize GM to buy the design, so we can lower the inertia weight, show better fuel efficiency, and save the program. Uh, and except they couldn't make the part. And uh, then they turned to me and said, okay, you know, if we give you a purchase order, will you be able to do it? And, I mean, I'll never forget it. you got to remember, I mean, this in the 78, GM was probably close to 5% of the GDP of America. And there you have it. What a story. And, by the way, soon after that purchase order from GM, and what a big deal to get that first purchase order, every new company is dying to land that big one from General Motors or IBM or some big company because that's how you grow into a bigger company yourself. He went from one employee to 53 and now has 13,000. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories, our weekly first job segment, Immigrant Shahid Khan's story. He started as a dishwasher, was hired on his second day in this country making $1.20 an hour. He thought that was just dandy. He was making more than 99% of the people where he'd just come from, Pakistan. And he said that this money wasn't like a melting ice cube. It was something he could replenish through work. He discovered his American dream within 24 hours of being an American. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. And when you hear that music, it means we're, we're in a final thought segment. Where we hear from folks who are dying, final thoughts from their loved ones, and some that were so good that we'd done last year, we just replay them. Because you can never hear enough of these kinds of quality stories. And if you have a final thought story, give us a call at 844-627-8255. Record your story there or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And today we bring you a past feature that was from Brooks Eason. And it was his tribute, his final thoughts to his father, Paul. And we bring it to you today because Paul was born today in 1921. And so we throw to the son, Brooks. I grew up in Tupelo, Mississippi, best known as the birthplace of Elvis Presley. I learned my love for camping from my father, Paul Eason, the finest man I've ever known. Daddy also grew up in Tupelo. He started college at Ole Miss in 1939. After Pearl Harbor, he increased his workload so he could finish early and join the Naval Air Corps. He graduated in December 1942, a semester before the rest of his class. By the time Daddy finished flight school and got his wings, the air war in the Pacific was in high gear. He wanted to go, but the Navy brass had other plans. Daddy had done too well in flight school. He was assigned to be a flight instructor to teach others who were bound for the Pacific. Daddy protested and made his wishes known, but to no avail. He stayed behind, never leaving the States. After he was discharged in 1946, Daddy took advantage of the GI Bill and returned to college for one more semester, the one he'd missed, and one more football season. During the week before the game between Ole Miss and arch rival Mississippi State, Daddy and several other veterans printed antagonistic leaflets to drop on the Mississippi State campus. Six of them drove the 50 miles to Tupelo, rented three planes, and flew south to Starkville. In their first pass over the school, the three planes complied with FAA altitude requirements. But it was a windy day, and the first drop of leaflets scattered widely. Most did not even land on the campus. For their second pass, the planes swooped low, ignoring the rules. The pilot in the lead plane, who had flown a P-47 over Europe in the war, flew so low his passenger later said he'd looked up and seen the top of the school's flagpole. The leaflets were dropped successfully and the planes flew back to Tupelo. Daddy and his friends returned to Oxford, their mission accomplished. Several weeks later, when Daddy was again home in Tupelo, he was confronted by an excited airport official demanding to know where they had gone in the three planes. Unbeknownst to Daddy and his friends, one of the planes had bullet holes in it. There was but one explanation. Veterans of the war were also taking advantage of the GI Bill at Mississippi State. When the enemy planes flew past their dorms, at least one of them opened fire. After his one semester at Ole Miss, Daddy returned to Tupelo, where he lived a life of unsurpassed civic commitment and community service. When he was a boy himself growing up in the Depression, Daddy was a member of Boy Scout Troop 12. He earned Scouting's highest rank, the Eagle, in 1939. Shortly after he moved back home after the war, Troop 12 found itself in need of a new scoutmaster. Daddy was young and single and had time on his hands. In 1947, at the age of 25, he became the leader of the troop. 
Four decades later, Daddy told me he had thought he would take a turn at the helm for a few years and then hand over the reins to someone new. He had not imagined just how long his turn would be. Daddy served as the head scoutmaster of Troop 12 for 45 years until he turned 70. For another 15 years after that, he served as one of the assistant scoutmasters, continuing to attend meetings and camp with the troop. Daddy married my mother in 1950, three years after he became the troop leader. His scouts acted as if they had veto rights. They had to give his fiancée their stamp of approval before the wedding could take place. In 1951, some of the boys in the troop pointed out to Daddy what he already knew, that camping was the very best part of scouting. Ken Kirk, the troop's senior patrol leader and a future professional football player, suggested the troop should go on a camp out every month. Daddy agreed, and during that summer, a tradition was born. Troop 12 began going on an overnight camping trip every month without fail. Since then, in blizzards and thunderstorms and bitter cold and stifling heat, Troop 12 has never missed a month, not since Harry Truman was president. In March of 1993, the troop went on its 500th consecutive camp out. Former troop members who lived all over the country returned to celebrate and camp together at Camp Yakna, the Boy Scout camp 30 miles west of Tupelo. Among those present were men and boys who had become Eagle Scouts under Daddy's leadership over the course of six decades. After I got back to Jackson, I wrote Daddy a letter to thank him for teaching me to love the outdoors and to love camping, and to tell him that he was my hero. He still is and always will be. Though accurate records apparently don't exist, it is almost certain that more boys became Eagle Scouts under Daddy's leadership than that of any other Scoutmaster in the history of the Boy Scouts of America. When Daddy earned his Eagle Award in 1939, he became only the fifth Troop 12 Eagle Scout. I was the 125th in 1972. There have now been more than 400. Troop 12 went on its 600th consecutive monthly camp out, 50 years without a miss in the summer of 2001, and on its 700th in the fall of 2009. Daddy and I camped with the troop at the 600th. We didn't camp at the 700th, which was the weekend after Daddy turned 88, but we went to the banquet honoring the milestone. One of the younger boys in the troop was asked at the camp out to identify the father of scouting. The correct answer was Lord Baden-Powell. The boy's answer was Paul Eason. Two years later, when Daddy turned 90, he was given the key to the city of Tupelo, and a resolution honoring him was presented on the floor of the United States House of Representatives. Daddy died on July the 1st, 2013, four months before his 92nd birthday. On the second weekend of January 2014, Troop 12 went camping for the 750th month in a row. The troop had t-shirts printed with Daddy's picture on the front and back. I got one for everybody in my family and my sister's family, and I wear mine often. Not surprisingly, my first memories of camping are the result of Daddy's involvement in scouting, but they are of camping trips I was too young to attend. I remember watching Daddy pack his backpack, preparing for a trip to one of the many places around Tupelo where the troop camped. When he came home at the end of the weekend, he would pick me up and rub his whiskers on the back of my neck. I would inhale the wonderful, mysterious smell of campfire smoke, a smell I still love. I couldn't wait until I was old enough to go. And what a story, and thank you, Brooks, the son. A final thoughts tribute to his father, Paul, again, who was born today in 1921. One year 
When Brooks posted about his father's birthday on Facebook, there was an outpouring of comments from other people about what his dad meant to them. And we wanted to read a few to you here. These were a few of Brooks' favorites. Mr. Eason was one of the greatest Americans and role models of all time. God blessed 1,000 times and 1,000 times more by giving us this man. Thank you, Brooks and the Eason family, for sharing him with all of us. Here's another. Your father was one of the three most amazing men I ever knew when I was growing up. The two others were my father and my grandfather. Lord knows I tested Mr. Eason every Monday night. What's amazing is that he never ratted me out to my parents. He was truly one in a billion. And the last, what a wonderful man he was. I still picture him in his uniform. He influenced many boys in a positive way. That's a real gift. By the way, any man, any woman would want to hear these kinds of things written about them when they were gone. And that's why we bring you final thoughts. Not to teach people how to die, but, of course, to teach them how to live. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. And again, give us your final thoughts, if you care to, at 844-627-8255. That's 844-627-8255. stories and we're back with one of our favorite subjects and favorite topics random acts of kindness you can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org it's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids also make sure to leave any story you've encountered on there as well and today we have a special installment of our random acts of kindness segment if you have any cops among your friends and family you know they don't like to self-promote So we called the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, Joe Gamaldi, and chatted for a bit about some of the good work their officers have been doing. And again, we can't overemphasize this. We have to practically pull these good stories out of them, not because they don't happen, 
because these are mostly public servants, a lot of them ex-militaries, we learn over and over again, and they just have servants' hearts. And servants don't brag. This is what, as Chris Rock always used to say, you're supposed to do these things. <laughs> what, you want a cookie? <laughs> exactly. I pay the rent. You're supposed to pay the rent. <laughs> these officers conduct themselves with a quiet humility, even the more senior ones, but the kindness rarely makes it into the press. You know, oftentimes what people hear about us in the community is, is these harrowing tales of us, you know, saving someone or, you know, being involved in defending the, the defenseless. But, but sometimes our officers are out there just doing these random acts of kindness to really show the community that we're a part of the community just like they are and that we're people just like they are. Uh, we're not this uh, mysterious entity. Uh, we're people and we have big hearts. And, you know, if you ask any police officer why he got into police work, the answer is always going to be, I wanted to help people. And one of the stories I wanted to share was about a sergeant we have that's assigned to the homeless outreach team. What they essentially do is they go out into the community and they make contact with the homeless and try to get them medical services if they're in need of getting an ID so that they get into a shelter. They'll help them in any number of issues, um, you know, even government assistance to try to get them off the streets and get them back into housing and get them back into the workforce as well. Well, in particular, uh, Sergeant Steve Wick saw a gentleman who was walking. He was homeless. He had no shoes on. Uh, you know, the man hadn't showered in a long time. Uh, his feet looked to be in bad condition. So Sergeant Steve Wick took it upon himself to take this gentleman to their, uh, to their facility. And then he proceeded to actually wash this gentleman's feet and clip his toenails for him. Now, I can't tell you the last time the man had, uh, had bathed his feet or anything like that, but this sergeant, what he did was basically show the world we're people and we just want to help folks. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, there's a biblical uh, angle to all this as well. You know, Jesus washed other people's feet and, feet, and this sergeant stepped up and did the same for a homeless man. And uh, I think it really speaks to the type of people that we are. I'd say. And, my goodness, it is the kind of story you almost need to, out of almost social responsibility, push out there. Because, my goodness, folks don't think about those kinds of things. And most of us avoid those people on the street. And these officers not only have a heart for these folks, they're trying to find a home for them. Houston police officers feel the need to help and protect everyone, no matter how new they are to the city. There is Officer Lariano, who works down in our Central Patrol. Uh, he was just riding patrol on his normal day, and it happened to be extremely cold out in Houston, which is rare for us, but it does happen. <laughs> um, he saw some folks walking on the side of the road, just not with the proper clothes for the weather. And what really drew him to them was that they had two kids with them. One was 14 and one was two, and it was a family of four. So he approached them and made contact with them basically just to see if they were okay. You know, he didn't get a call. No one called this in. He took it upon himself to check on a family who were in basically shorts and a T-shirt in winter weather. When he approached them, uh, he started speaking with them, and they essentially told him that these were Cuban refugees they had come up through South America, through Mexico, and had entered the country uh, legally uh, for asylum. And it was incredible that they had made it this far, number one. But now that here they were in Houston, they knew no one. Uh, no government services had kicked in yet. So they were just wandering the streets of Houston in the middle of the winter. And this officer, uh, you know, the type of guy he is and the heart that he has, he just couldn't see them. And he couldn't just drive past. He had to stop. And once he figured out what was going on, he could have left. He could have simply referred them to a shelter and been done. But that's not the type of people we are. 
So Officer Lariano took it upon himself to go to the store and buy $500 worth of winter clothing so that all, uh, from his own pocket to make sure that all these, uh, these family members had clothing. But he didn't stop there. He then started calling every single shelter in the city to try to get them into a family shelter. And for those of you who don't know, it's very difficult to get an entire family. Usually they'll just take children or women, and they separate men and women. But they wanted to stay together as a family, obviously so, after the harrowing tale that they had told him. So he took it upon himself. He contacted these shelters. One said, well, we can let them stay on the property, but we can't let them stay in the building. So the officer took it upon himself once again to find a tent so that they could stay in a tent on the shelter property so at least they could stay together as a family. And most people would say that at this point the officer had done enough. He had done his duty. He, he had done everything that he could do for this family, but not our officers. He didn't stop there. The next day, he went back to that shelter. He checked on the family once again, and from there began working on establishing permanent housing for that family. And he also worked on making sure that the, all the government services were activated accordingly for someone in their position. And as a result of that, from the hard work of this officer, they were able to get them into permanent housing and actually get the um, father integrated into society to where he now has a job. And in this story, we learn that the Houston police officers are truly here to help. Just ask. There was actually a homeless mother, and she was the mother of two children, um, both children with disabilities. Uh, so you can imagine the difficulties that this mother already has, and, and now the fact that she's homeless on top of it. So she walked into a police station, and one of our officers, Officer Escobar, was working the front desk. She started talking to him, saying, you know, she needed help and that she was homeless and that she doesn't have, uh, you know, anywhere for her children to stay. Uh, and, of course, this officer did the same thing that, that Officer Lariano did at first, which was let's call these shelters and figure out a place that they could stay. But, of course, there was no room at any of these shelters for this woman and her two children. So instead, this officer took it upon himself to take money out of his own pocket to pay for, ho for a hotel room for several nights so that this family could have a roof over their head. But he didn't stop there. Him and his wife actually contacted a local radio station, and they, did, uh, they asked their family and friends and folks from, that were listening to the radio station to donate money. And they were able to essentially get this family into a hotel room for you know, a month by the, by the money they'd raised. And they continued to work with this family, and they've established, um, you know, a permanent residence for them now so that they no longer have to stay in a hotel room. They no longer have to stay on the street. And these children with disabilities and the mother that's taking care of them, they now have a roof over their head. All thanks to this officer taking the time to listen and pulling money out of his own pocket to make sure they had a place to stay. You know, she, she found that help, exactly what she was looking for at the police station. And I think it really sends a positive message to everybody in the community when you need help, we are there. Whether it's a police station or whether you call 911, we are here to help you. You know, don't be fooled by what some folks in the media or some politicians may tell you. We are here to help you. And if you need help, all you have to do is reach out. And it's so true. And they are there when you call. And they do come and respond to dangerous situations when we ask them to. And they don't. I don't think they care if we say thank you. I mean, it'd be a nice thing to do. But we say thank you here on Our American Stories. And this is our way of showing gratitude to all of the officers who do all the things they do. And these particular ones here at the Houston, Houston PD. And we were just hearing from the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, Joe Gamaldi.
And we're going to be always telling stories about cops and first responders as long as we do our American stories. Our Random Acts of Kindness segment, as always. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. More after these messages. American stories, and from time to time, we like to bump in and out with some of the music of Gary Clark Jr., a young man who has risen to the top of the blues scene in just a few years. That's who we're listening to now with his track, Third Stone from the Sun. Gary Lee Clark Jr. was born in February 15, 1984, in Austin, Texas, one of America's great music towns. He won a Grammy in 2013 for Best Traditional R&B Performance. Eric Clapton said that hearing Gary Clark Jr. made him want to play the guitar again. Buddy Guy says that this kid could be the one to save the blues. Not bad accolades for a 32-year-old musician. In this documentary from Rolling Stone, we meet Gary Clark Jr. in the garage of someone he calls his biggest musical influence, Eve Monse, a white girl he met in the third grade who played the guitar. Here these two reminisce about those early years of their friendship together. Can I use this thing? Sure, yeah. Remember the little 10 watt amp I used to have? Was it a crate? Yeah, a one. trying to compete with this thing. <laughs> I'm turning like all the way up. And the Grammy goes to Gary Clark Jr. Please come home. I'm so, I have no idea what to say. This is amazing. Um, Eve Monse, I wouldn't be playing guitar. I wouldn't be playing music. If it weren't for her, she took me to my first gig, and it all started from there. So what did we play back then? I kind of felt like we, we would just, you know, play... Yeah. Play stuff. I remember sweet. hearing you play that stuff. From yeah, yeah. Down the that was kind of what perked my ear. I was like, what are y'all doing down there? <laughs> you know, people ask me, I'm like, who's your musical influence? Who do you look up to? It's like, that was her. You know, from my window, sitting around, you know, doing my homework or whatever I'm doing, I'm hearing this. I'm like, I want to go be a part of that. And she let me be a part of it. As when we moved to Austin and from Houston, and um, Gary was one of the one of the kids in the class. I just think we were like in the middle of reading like Hank the Cow Dog or something, and she was introduced to the class. Like, hey, this is a new student from uh, Houston. Her name's Eve Monse. Came and sat in the circle and found out she lived right down the street. They went through three schools, you know, together: the elementary, you know middle school and high school and, and uh, doing basketball and doing other activities at school. 
He was a brother she never had, I guess you could say, you know. Uh, for Gary, it was like, and she was like another sister. Around 11, my parents got me a, a guitar for my birthday, and to have that sound, to be able to move your fingers on this instrument and make this sound was like the coolest thing in the world. I thought it was cool that, you know, she could hear a record or whatever and be able to translate it, figure out how to play it. I just was drawn in right away. I just wanted to be around it all the time. The pair became obsessed with a bootleg tape of 60s footage of blues greats like T-Bone Walker performing in Germany, rewinding and watching and rewatching licks again and again. Here again is Gary Clark Jr. and Eve Monsey. We'd hang out and we'd play in the garage, just, you know, we could play loud. And it was just kind of a place to escape, you know, uh, everything else that was going on and just do our thing. You know, I really just liked playing. I was more into just the wailing and, and all that. And she really started to get into the history. And the blues, the musician, tells a story and lives a story through his music. There was a, a period in the 60s where they would bring these awesome musicians from America over to Germany and film them. There was this bootleg tape going around, and we ended up with this copy, and, and it was, you know, we'd never seen footage of T-Bone Walker before, or any of these guys. So we would watch this stuff, and, you know, some of that stuff, T-Bone Walker's pretty fast, so we're like, okay, wait, back it up, okay. As I go, oh, oh, yeah, I got it, okay, you know. So we'd try to learn from the tape. That was the thing that we shared that uh, none of our other friends shared with us was the music. I thought I was going to be the next boys to men or something. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Being here in this garage kind of helped change my mind about what I wanted to do with my life, you know. The guitar, you know, the rock and roll of it was edgier, it was cooler, it was more rebellious. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. Here, Eve's parents... Eve and Gary Clark Jr. talk about winning talent shows in school. They also started playing in bars. When they were in the eighth grade um, in middle school, they decided to form a band for the talent show. We played the Pride and Joy, Steve Ray Vaughan. That was like, you know, one of the earliest onstage moments that we had. They won first place in that. And the audience was just screaming like they were at some big, huge rock concert. One of those moments where I was like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. It's, it's crazy. I, I guess I still haven't like soaked up that I'm sitting here <laughs> and it's been so long. And what, seeing the parents here, I'm thinking about, you know, being too young to drive and hopping in the car and going to Antone's or Joe's generic bar. We were kids and then going to school and people would be like, what did you do last night? Like, you have no idea, you know? They were up there playing until two, 2 in the morning. We had to like, you know, stay right there with them. You know, I was 21, so uh, except for them two. Here, Gary Clark Jr. and Eve talk about how things all started to change when he started playing at Antone's in Austin. And they began going their separate ways 
And then, and then Gary got a letter in the mail from Eric Clapton. For me, the moment where it started to become real was playing shows at Antos. It was really jumping here for many years. Clifford would go out of his way to hire everybody he could. You didn't come play in Antones because you were trying to help your career. You came to Antones and played because it was fun, and uh, you, you never knew who was going to show up. Hanging around Antones, you got to be introduced to guys like James Cotton, Pine Top Perkins, Hubert Sumlin. The further I was going, it seemed like the history was coming up. I mean, I don't think we expected to feel so welcomed into the whole community. Well, we were like the new blood, you know, so they supported that. When we first started playing, we didn't know anybody. It was like we only knew each other, and that was it. And then we started meeting these other people. We kind of started to go separate ways. She started playing with a different band, and we just grew up, moved out of the house, and, you know, friends, and parties, and girls, and things like that. I spent years playing at the Continental Club, playing at Antones. Kind of the starving artist, but didn't want to do anything else. You know, I wanted to play music. That was it. 2010, I get a call from Doyle Bramhall. He says, I think, uh, I think Eric Clapton uh, might call you for this Crossroads Festival. Have you heard of it? Sure enough, I get a letter in the mail from the dude inviting me to come to his festival. 28,000 people or something. Which is, I've never seen that many people in my life. And all of a sudden, I'm standing in front of them and they're looking at me like, what are you going to do? I hope you're awesome. Get lost in the city, try to find myself. I meet some guys from the label. A little while later, put out my first record called black and blue and things just kind of been crazy since and here eve talks about her band while she has yet to reach the level of fame that gary has achieved he says that he wouldn't be where he is now without her then we hear them jam a little bit to close out this great story my main band's called even the exiles i've been in the studio we're working on a new record and i feel like anything i'll ever do it'll still have that Blues Foundation. Eve is my partner in crime. She knows more about and understands more about what I'm doing than I do, I think. If it hadn't been for her mentorship and friendship and support, I don't think I would be sitting here in this chair. This was the cool place to be for me. I mean, playing music, playing basketball. Yeah. Just kind of walking back with my little amp or my guitar back to my house, thinking like, yeah, this is, what now? You know what I mean? So, I don't know. This was the happy place, I guess. I guess so. Guy Clark Jr., an amazing American blues talent from humble beginnings, with a humble heart who isn't afraid to give credit where credit is due, 
What a great story about music, about guitars, about friendship. And by the way, we never mentioned Gary Clark Jr. is black and Yves Monset is white. And they don't care. And we love telling those kinds of stories here on Our American Stories all the time. Because in America, most of the time, almost all the time, we just don't care. American Stories, and you're listening to Elton John and Bernie Taupin, the amazing duo. And this was their 50th hit on the UK charts. And only he, Elvis Presley, and Cliff Richards ever imagined doing something like that and never did actually do something like that. The song came out in 1989, and it sounds like it. Trapped by those synthesizers (laughs) in that Miami Vice soundtrack. But what a song it is. And let's hear Elton John talking about the lyrics to this song and the melody with Arsenio Hall. That song is from the 29th album? Probably more than that. I've lost count myself, yes. What was special about Sacrifice? Um, It's just when you record and write, when you write something initially, um, when you're doing a demo of a song, uh, sometimes it gives you goosebumps. Mm -hmm. And then when it does give you goosebumps, you know it's maybe a little bit more special than some of the other songs on the album. It doesn't happen that often. I mean, it happened on Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. It happened on Someone Saved My Life Tonight and a couple of other things. Uh, and it's the one song off the album that um, I really am very, very, very fond of. I mean, I'm very fond of the album, but I, I really love that song. And Bernie Taupin, who wrote all the lyrics for Elton John's music, said this. I think Sacrifice is one of the best songs we've ever written. The song is not a typical love song, though, but rather a song about a breakup of a marriage with a loss of the relationship is actually no sacrifice. And here is Sinead O'Connor talking about the song, and she talked about the song because she covered it in a tribute album to Elton John, where Eric Clapton, Rod Stewart, Tina Turner, Hall & Oates, Joe Cocker, Beach Boys, The Who, all did their favorite Elton John song, covered it, and Sting too. Here's Sinead O'Connor talking about the song Sacrifice, and why she decided to cover it. I figured I'd sort of pare it down a bit and just make it sound a bit emptier, you know, the way that I figured the words suggested. I think it's a, it's a song that, as a singer, is very enjoyable uh, to sing. Yeah, so I suppose it's, it's a song that's written for singers, yeah. And here's the first verse and chorus. So 
the second verse and chorus and Sinead O'Connor showing her singing chops and her interpretive talents. And there you have it, a great song married to a remarkable singer and a great interpretation, just a stripped-down, stripped-down version. Again, of Elton John and Bernie Taupin's beautiful ballad, Sacrifice. We go out again with Sinead O'Connor from Two Rooms, her cover of her favorite song and her favorite cover of all time, Sacrifice.
This is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 2008, Michael Crichton died. And if you don't know his work, well, you actually do know his work. That's the thing. His books have sold over 200 million copies worldwide, and many have been adopted into films. The books, The Andromeda Strain, Congo, Sphere, Travels, Jurassic Park, Rising Sun, Disclosure, The Lost World, Airframe, Timeline, Timeline, Prey, State of Fear, and many more. By the way, this is a pretty unbelievable feat he achieved in 1994. Crichton became the only creative artist ever to have work simultaneously charting at number one. You see, he also writes screenplays and TV shows in his spare time. At the time, he had a number one show on TV called ER. He wrote that. Film, Jurassic Park. He wrote that. And book sales, Disclosure. He wrote that. No one's ever done that. He was a real scientist, though, and a man of science. And graduated from Harvard Medical School, young and fast. Was pretty bored with life at a think tank, doing computer modeling and studies on scientific research. And when he wrote the book State of Fear, uh, it was really about fear-mongering and global warming. And Crichton, who is a lifelong Democrat, had decided to challenge the global warming crowd. And in a remarkable interview, we're going to walk you through with Charlie Rose, one of his last. Charlie Rose challenges Crichton. And we want to walk you through this because it shows you the kind of man Crichton was in the end, he was a man of science, and he took, he took his work where it took him, no matter what. So this interview starts off with Charlie Rose talking about global warming and the catastrophes that were unhurling before us, as predicted in Al Gore's pretty recent movie, then Al Gore's movie, Inconvenient Truth, had just come out, and it was the talk of America and the world. So he's asked why he's writing about this this uh, phenomenon negatively in his book, State of Fear, and why he's sort of critiquing the current science. First thing I want to say to you is, I'm not stopping anybody from doing any of this. Right. And I don't want to be blamed (laughs) for the notion that, you know, the Congress isn't going to pass the Kyoto Protocol or something like that. Um, But I think the answer is that whenever you have something that's untied to the data. And when you have people adopting essentially philosophical positions, emotional positions, which the environment tremendously invites, uh, how I feel as I walk through the woods and how I feel as I see clear cutting or something like that, um, very often from people who really don't understand these issues at all, then it's a very easy thing for an attitude to move in the direction of increasing demand or increasing hysteria or increasing concern, whether or not that's appropriate or not. And and you can see these movements take over science. You know, when I was a young person, every project, every grant proposal had to be to cure cancer because it was Lyndon Johnson's war on cancer. And there was no point. I mean, if you wanted to propose something, You had to find a way to say, well, this is going to help cure cancer, true or not. Rather than diabetes or something. Right. I mean, you couldn't just be doing basic research. So 
I understand that, that, you know, these ideas can take hold, and I understand that, generally speaking, the more extreme elements will, will push that, and the media is not interested in a balanced perspective. I am. Okay. But you're very rare. What a great point he was making, by the way, that politics ends up corrupting science because the money flows. And the next thing you know, all those auditioning young scientists at universities around the country want the grant money. Then he's asked about Al Gore and an inconvenient truth. Al Gore. I like him very much. He's wrong on this issue. He's wrong? He's wrong on this issue. That's my opinion. Well, listen to Charlie on that one. Take a listen. He's wrong? He's wrong? He's wrong? He can't believe it. He can't believe it. (laughs) He's wrong? Oh, you can't. You can't keep that forever, Jesse. And so Crichton says, look, Gore's predictions are wrong, and attitudinally, they're wrong as well. Kilimanjaro, as an example of global warming, is wrong. 20-foot increase in sea levels or 40-foot increases, whatever it is now, is wrong. And, and I think, actually, attitudinally, it's wrong. I think that... You know, the notion that this is a that this is a spiritual or religious issue for us is wrong. It is a scientific matter that we need to look at with as dispassionate a way of seeing it as possible. And if we don't do that, we're just expressing rank prejudices as so Al Gore's movie and book express rank prejudices. That's my view, sure. He's wrong? <laughs> and the difference, by the way, between Al Gore and Michael Crichton, well, let's hear Michael Crichton explain. Somebody asked me the difference between me and Al, because, and, I, and I wondered about it too. But I think he relies on, on the expert witness. And I don't. I don't. I didn't talk to anybody. You do the work yourself. Yes. And you don't think he does the work himself. No, you don't think I, he's... I don't think he goes and looks at the data. Okay. I do not. And I don't think he makes his own grass. And I don't. You know, I talked to two people, both very eminent, um, when I was working on the book, and both, you know, they both attacked me subsequently, um, because they were the leading people thinking about this. And I went to them and said, "These are my problems," and I didn't get good answers back. Sure didn't. And here's Crichton summing things up. The shortest version of this that I have is, I said, okay, we've had half a degree or six-tenths of a degree. It's not a crisis. What is everyone upset about? And the answer is, we're upset about the future. How do you know, because I believe the future is unknowable, how do you know what this is going to be? And their answer is, we have a computer model of global climate. And I say, climate according to the last UN report, is a coupled, nonlinear, chaotic system. And they say long-term prediction of climate is not possible. That's what they say. Direct quote. So I'm saying I don't think that a computer model cuts it. I'm not having it. This is a fascinating exchange between Rose, Charlie Rose, that is, and Michael Crichton. You think that the reason it's gotten such... I mean, it is now, in the opinion of many, has reached a critical mass, this judgment that it's more severe than right. you think it is, right. is because it has a certain what? Certain, why does it have such currency? 
Well, first of all, people are... What is the way about America works that gives always, it such It's currency. not America. It's, it's human beings. They line up for the catastrophe. They're ready for it. They're ready for overpopulation. They're ready for resource depletion. They're ready for whatever it is. They're, we're ready for bird flu. And he continues. Sit down at a dinner party and you say, the world is coming to an end. We have the most horrible things in about, And you get immediately the aroused attention at the table. Alternatively, you say, you know what? Basically, everything's good. Uh, the world's getting better. Nobody cares. No, they get, they get angry. Or they turn away. It's not what we want to hear. We want to hear disaster. And this may be the most fascinating part of the interview. Do you have, I mean, you know how much I like you. You know, we've had more good conversations here than anybody has. Did you have trepidation about doing this? Because I think you're wrong, but I don't know. So therefore, I can't prove it. Yeah, I did. You know, I didn't want trepidation to do why do Why do I, Michael Crichton, need to go here? Uh, I mean, just keep my opinions to myself. I, I did. I didn't want to write it. I decided I wouldn't write it. I had breakfast with a friend of mine, a scientist who I hadn't seen in 30 years, and I told him my dilemma, and he said, no, no, you have to write it. I said, I'm going to get killed for this. He said, no, you have to write it. I would like to be able to say that as a result of that conversation, I decided to write it. I didn't. I went home and I thought, you know what, I'm not writing this. I'm just, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll, as you said, keep my opinion to myself. I started to work on something else, and I felt like a coward. Mm. And I thought, what are you going to do? You have looked at the data... And you really believe that it's, it's an effect, but not something that, the, and that, the, that, the, that we as human beings should be worrying about lots and lots of other things. I mean, since I'm taking the Bjorn Lomborg position, it's low on the totem pole. We ought to be taking care of disease. We ought to be taking care of world hunger. We ought to be taking care of a lot of things before we do this. In the same interview, he went on to talk about scientific consensus and how those two are sort of mutually exclusive. He didn't like the term consensus in science. It scared him. And what a way to go out in your career. He died not long after the publication of this book. And as you can tell, boy, he got a lot of combat fatigue because everyone came after him, all of his friends. And Charlie Rose actually intimated that he should have just kept his opinions to himself. Don't write the book. That's what Charlie Rose was saying. And that's why we're celebrating Michael Crichton's life. And what a life it was. One of America's great writers, one of America's great creative minds, and also just a warrior for truth. Michael, White, Michael Crichton died on this day in history in 2008. American stories, and on this day in history, in 1879, an American icon was born, and his name is Will Rogers. And by the way, Google his name, go on YouTube, and just watch. Watch his physicality, watch some of the scenes in the movies, watch him with a rope and a horse, uh, an American original. And so we decided to do what we often do here, and that's, well, get in touch with the folks who know the most about the person we're about to talk about. And there are so many great museums in this country. And one we're going to visit soon is the Johnny Cash Museum to celebrate his life. But the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma, which, as Will Rogers liked to say, was right in the middle of the world. Well, there, Andy Hogan is the historical guide, the resident historian, so to speak, 
again, of the Will Rogers Memorial Museum. And Andy joins us now. Andy, tell us a little bit about Will Rogers' early life. Where did he grow up? How did he grow up? Who was his dad? We love starting with the father before we get to the son. All righty. Will Rogers' mother and father were both about one-fourth Cherokee. They were attending a Cherokee college when they met and married at age 19. They wanted to stay in a Cherokee district of Indian Territory, so they moved to the little area of Uligaw, which is near Claremore. They started a trading post. The Civil War came along, and the Cherokees chose to go with the side of the South, which we felt was a good move. And uh, they, Will's dad fought with the Cherokee Cavalry Group, commanded by a Colonel William Penn Adair. And that's where Will got his name then, was William Penn Adair Rogers from that colonel. The oldest daughter died during the Civil War, and Will's mom and dad lost their trading post, of course, losing the war. And after that, they started a farm near the same area, all on Cherokee lands. They didn't have to buy the Cherokee lands. They could use it. They didn't own it particularly, but that Cherokees held everything in common. Four, Fourteen counties in northeastern Oklahoma comprised the original Cherokee Nation. So Will's dad was able to use a 60,000-acre area as a farm located between the Verdigree and the Caney River. Uh, he began to get cattle on this land, and, of course, during the Civil War, there were a lot of longhorn cattle that were not owned by anybody down in Texas and Mexico. And so Will's dad could get them brought up here for about $6 a head. And uh, so he accumulated as many as about 6,000 head on his 60,000 acres. Wow. Will being the only boy of a family with uh, eight siblings originally, but only four survived, three older sisters and Will. So Will got to be the cowboy. Of course, girls did girl things back then. Boys did boy things. Well, when it came time to go to school, well, little Willie, Willie Rogers didn't want to go to school. He wanted to be the cowboy. He wanted to stay home. So he kind of balked at going to school, and he said, I, I, I'll go, but I ain't going to learn nothing. He said, I'm successful, too. <laughs> he said, I, he said I, want, I wanted to remain ignorant. Boy, you talk about successful. But then he said, you know, we're all ignorant. We're just ignorant on different subjects. But anyhow, he didn't do well in school because he had the wiggles real bad. Uh, he just couldn't sit still. He liked to play with that rope. At age 14, he went to the World's Fair in Chicago, 1893, watched the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Watched a Mexican trick roper. And then he decided, I'm going to learn to do those tricks. And he set about practicing. And Will had good hand-eye coordination. And he was extremely driven. Women call it hard-headed, but men call it driven. <laughs> <laughs> he, learned, he learned to do those tricks. And when his dad finally sent him to a military school, because of his lack of discipline, he went there for two years. And he had so many demerits built up. And had so much punishment coming in the way of marching, he ran off from school, quit school when he was 18. He, he said, I regret quitting when I was 18 because I just never did take a chance on that fifth grade. <laughs> said, and tell I, me I, this, tell me this, the degree to which he was sort of a, a, a cynic about much and an optimist about much, but so much of his worldview, how much of it comes from the, the Cherokee part of his heritage? Uh, very little of it, actually. Uh, uh, he grew up knowing that 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 nobody was perfect. That that but he started kind of down at the bottom because Indians were not well thought of that much. And him being one fourth, he kind of had to fight a little upriver, a little uh, harder. He felt like right. But 
Will just had that that understanding of people when they thought of something, when they did something. He looked for the foibles, he looked for the fallacies, and he'd pick on those things. And of course, he was a satirist, for what he was actually. But he did it in a playful manner, no malice intended. Never met a man I didn't like. He said that's the reason I've teased all these important people, and they'll take they'll take teasing. That a big man will take teasing. That's what makes him big. The little man don't take teasing too well because he wants to be big. But Will got to know. Well, I tell everybody he was an advisor to seven of our presidents at one time. They didn't want his advice, but he gave it to him anyhow. <laughs> How much? Tell me this: when he was he developed these incredible roping skills, but then he he learned he had these incredible talking skills. This 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 person who had sort of shunned formal education was able to speak a certain brand of Americana and Americanese that I think created modern satire and, in a way, modern comedy. He he took his roping skills from the Wild West show to the vaudeville stage. On the vaudeville stage, he'd mumble. And, like, he'd miss a rope trick, he'd have something funny to say. Well, the people that worked with him said, Will, you're right. Don't just say it where we can hear it on the stage. Say it where your audience can hear it. So he began to talk, and he began people... People like that. And then after he finally got married, his wife said, you sat at the breakfast table, and you tell me funny things about everything you read in that paper. Tell you, tell your public that. So he began to talk about it on the stage then. And he would put it in terms that were funny, whatever he had read. He'd have put his views on it, his slants on it. And he just had the, he had, he was quick-witted as Jay Leno and Johnny Carson and Jack Parr. He had that same kind of quick wit. Yeah, and he had great time. He had great timing too, guy. I mean, it was remarkable. Tell me this: When did he decide to say goodbye to the rope and just say uh, yes ne- to the writing and the humor? Never did. Nope. He kept that rope all the time. Uh, he uh, his last six years, he lived in a house overlooking the ocean in Santa Monica, California. He kept horses, he kept goats, and he kept calves out there. He turned the calf roping. And uh, things like, like that is a hobby out there, but he kept that rope going all the time. When and he just was, he, he was, just he just dropped it in his in his public act, so to speak. Um, well, but the passion for the rope was always there. Right when he became a movie star, of course he couldn't use the rope. He did it. He used it in a few a few movies. Right. But, I mean, he had dropped it when he was on the radio. Of course, it wasn't doing him any good. When he was writing newspaper articles, of course, he wasn't using it. But when he was the after dinner speaker. But the, what we call a stand-up comedian, uh, then he'd pull out the rope and play with it. That's great. Continued at age fifty-five when he died in the plane crash. Well, uh, he still he was still doing roping skills. If folks were to go to the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma, and as you said, it's right in the middle of the world. Or Will Rogers said that. What did you say about New York City? Seventeen hundred miles, turn right, and and that's Claremore. He said if you go if you go seventeen hundred miles west. New York City, when you get to Sid Millican's barn, turn left. There you are. <laughs> there it is. By the way, I want to read, folks, just a few things, and then I'd like you to share one or two things about the museum. When we come back, we'll really dig into the, the formal part of his life and I think how everyone came to know him. And it had a lot to do with his political satire. He became a very sharp student of Congress, a very sharp student, and I think not cynical, but just, again, looking at man and looking at him straight and honest, and not in a mean way. But some of the lines, a man only learns in two ways, one by reading and the other by association with smarter people. Another, the minute you read something you can't understand, you're almost sure that it was drawn up by a lawyer. 
And the short memories of the American voters is what keeps our politicians in office. And time and time again, he would spin these really clever lines. The man was just an outstanding writer, as we'll learn when we come back. And we'll be taking a tour, well, the only way we can on radio, talking about it, with the historical guide of the Will Rogers Memorial Museum, Andy Hogan, in Claremore, Oklahoma, again, right in the middle of the world. When we come back, more on Will Rogers, born on this day in history in 1879. Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Andy Hogan, the historical guide of the Will Rogers Memorial Museum. We're talking about Will Rogers because he was born on this day in 1879, an iconic figure in American history, a brilliant writer, and just, it's as American as Mark Twain. The voice was as American, and it started a type of writing and thinking and talking that's just what I call plain speak, not fancy talk. Uh, two more quotes before we, we go on. Even if you're on the right track, said Will Rogers, you'll get run over if you just sit there. And the other, there are three kinds of men, the ones that learn by reading, the few who learn by observation, and the rest of them, well, they have to pee on the electric fence for themselves. <laughs> that sounds like most of my friends. That's and Guy, yes, that is you, Greg. <laughs> and Guy, let's talk a little about this life. How did Will Rogers get from where he was to a place like California. All right, Will went from the uh, Wild West shows because of his roping skills to the vaudeville. Then he began to talk, and when he began to talk, that's when he went the big time. He even, uh, he even worked for the Ziegfeld Follies in New York City two different times. Uh, he finally made a silent movie in New Jersey while he was living there on uh, working in the vaudeville. And after that, he moved to California. He took all of his family out there, lost one son to diphtheria after he got out there, but he made 50 silent movies. He made 21 talking movies after the talking movies came along. And all this time, uh, he had little money to spend, so he would send, uh, he was a freelance reporter, I'd say. He'd send telegrams to the presidents, uh, to new newspapers, to magazines, and so forth. And finally, there was a syndicated group out of New York City that realized, you know, he's got something there. Let's get him to sign up and just, you know, just write exclusively for us. So beginning in 1922, he began to write a weekly newspaper article. Then in 1926, he began to write a daily newspaper article. And those were really read by, well, 400 different towns it was syndicated to. And how did he write? Well, about like the fourth grader that he was. When he, well, he always teased about quitting school when he's in the fourth grade, even though he's 18 years old. But he wouldn't use good grammar. He wouldn't spell words correctly. He wouldn't use proper punctuation, capitalization. And so Will did it his way. And he said one time, if you can't be the best at something, we'll be different than everybody else. <laughs> he spent, spent, spent a lot of time being different. He liked to do the unexpected. And when he wrote the newspaper articles, that gave him an excuse to travel. Well, the more he traveled, 
the more knowledge he gained. And I don't mean just in the United States, but he traveled all over the world. Uh, he could go to other countries. He met Mussolini. Uh, uh, he Several shows that he did in uh, London, England. He worked in uh, Germany and so forth. Uh, he went to Egypt. Somebody asked him if he saw the Sphinx when he was over there, and he said, no, I didn't need to. I'd, I'd already seen Mr. Coolidge. Uh, <laughs> love, love to tease Calvin Coolidge, old stone face. Yep. <laughs> uh, but, he, but he had that way of doing it, but he never changed. Uh, he became a multimillionaire through all of his earnings, plus he began to buy and sell property. After he got to California, he became uh, quite a buyer and seller of real estate. Now, the museum today is located on land where Will never lived in Claremore, which is actually 13 miles from where he was born and raised. But what happened was Will bought land both in Oklahoma and in California. So the land here where the memorial is located was land that he and Betty had bought in 1911. He actually owned the Santa Monica Beach at one time. He sold some land to a fellow named Bell out there in California, developed Bell Air, California. His house where he lived out there the last six years of his life is a California state park because his wife gave it to the state of California when she gave the 20 acres in Claremore to the state of Oklahoma. So that's why there are memorials located in both of those two places. And tell me about his wife. Tell me about his wife, if you could. This is an important part of his life. Um, share, share a bit about her with us. He met her when they were 20 years old in the train station at Uligal. She was from Rogers, Arkansas, ironically. Uh, and Will liked Betty. Betty liked Will. They were 20 years old, both of them, when they met. And they had a whirlwind romance and got married eight years later. It took him eight years to convince that gal to marry him. He was not your take-home-to-mother type as a young man. And uh, he said, I kept telling her, when we got 28, you got to marry me, Betty, because I'm the only one left. <laughs> we're so old, nobody, nobody will have either one of us. We're so old. They finally agreed to marry him. He said, That's the, you know, I did a lot of rope tricks. The best rope trick I ever did is roping that Betty. But she stuck with him all the way, and she was a great companion. She she kind of kept him on the, on the go all the time, uh, keeping him straight. Uh, had four kids, actually three of which were raised to adults. Uh, but but. She was just a, a great companion. She said I could go with him wherever I wanted to, but I couldn't keep up with him. None of us could. But he was so active, said uh, uh, that never heard him say he got tired. Said he just wanted to see him be home, and two days later he was ready to go again. But he just wanted to be moving all the time. And he was so hyperactive that that worked to his advantage because he just he progressed so much. I mean, he just accomplished so much in 55 years, all the different types of show business he was in. Well, he was very. He was also very. He had a lot to say about Congress. He had a lot to say about taxes and government. Uh, what led him to become almost the nation's leading humorist, and maybe one of the only humorists when it came to just talking about politics daily? He was way ahead of his time. He was way ahead of John Stewart and the Night Show guys. Talk about that. The newspaper. He read He read every newspaper that he could get. Now, when he was in New York City and then out close to Los Angeles, he had a lot of papers to read. So he'd read those papers, and that's people asked him who, who wrote his material, and he said, Congress. <laughs> yep. They're funnier than anything I could come up with. Now, he had some quotes that, that really are, are relevant today, too. He talked about the election. He said, you know, we had an election last Tuesday. He said, I'm so glad to get that thing over with. I said, so tired of hearing about that election, but it'll be three years before we can get all the dirt swept up. Yep. Yep. Nothing changes. 
There's, I, I went through, a, I, you know, I, Andy, I went through a page of quotes on elections on Republicans <laughs> and Democrats, and he oh, yeah. got both parties right. And it's still true today. He made fun of the Democrats for the right reasons. He made fun of Republicans for the right reasons. And you know what, Andy, almost nothing's changed. He could come back with that act and he could kill. Absolutely. Tell me this. In the museum, Andy, what, what, tell us about an exhibit or two. We can't see it, but describe one or two things. If, uh, if our folks are traveling across this great country and want to go to the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma, right in the middle of the nation, what would they see? It's a mile off of Old 66 Highway, the Will Rogers Memorial. Uh, the memorial located on the 20 acres that they had purchased, and Betty originally wanted it as a memorial. She didn't want it to become an amusement park, so there were, there were just two rooms that had anything. She saw that people treated it respect. Then she began to bring memorabilia, and it became the museum that it is today. But as you go into the museum, uh, you see Will's life as a cowboy, which he never got over. Uh, he loved the, you know horses all his life, good horses. Uh, lots of saddle, lots of tack, lots of memorabilia. Through that respect, uh, you'll see ropes, all different kinds of ropes in different countries. Uh, we have lots of videos of him, uh, of his movies. We play a different one every day, one of his uh, talking movies. And uh, you can see, of course, today we have Will's tomb out there because Will was originally buried in California when he died. And then in 1944, after six years, uh, his body was brought back and placed there in Claremore with now six members of his family, his wife and his, some of his children and, and grandchildren are there now. But the memorial has uh, items that were relevant to him. Uh, we have lots of letters. We have a lot of his quotes written on the wall down there that really make a lot of sense. We have the uh, iconic statue, the copy of the one in Washington, D.C., Oklahoma has uh, two statues that are both part Cherokee there in the uh, Hall of Fame there in, in our uh, nation's capital, and we have that one there in the rotunda. Will is always proud of that Cherokee heritage, so you'll see a lot of uh, Indian-related things. Even though he didn't show any signs of you know being Indian or thing, I mean he was just you know he was a cowboy uh, all his life, but but he always brought that Cherokee heritage up and. And he said Andrew Jackson must have been a tough old cuss to thought of all the things that he could do mean to the Indians. And, uh, but, but he always, always brought that through everything. Uh, we have the one room we call the final journey that tells about the plane crash in which he and Wiley Post were killed. And, and, uh, nine days they had flown in Alaska and killed on the, the ninth day, April, uh, August the 15th in 1935. So that room means quite a bit to see it. The grounds are on a hill that overlooks Claremore, and like I said, they had purchased this land. Buy all the land you can because they ain't making any more of it, Will said. Yep. So he had bought this 20 acres, and it's located in a spot that just overlooks the whole town of Claremore, which is not that big, about 16,000. But it's a beautiful location, and for the memorial, it, it's made out of a local sandstone. Uh, quarry got there in the county, and it just fits right into the hillside, and it kind of has a little bit of an Indian... Uh, design motif to it inside. We have one room that has uh, both his family heritage and his, his Cherokee heritage, both. But that the Cherokee Indian theme is kind of carried all throughout that also. Well, Andy, we appreciate that short tour. We appreciate the two segments with us. And thanks for all you do. And we're hoping folks get to the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma. Andy Hogan, historical guide at that museum. Thanks so much for joining us. 
This is Lee Habib, and a final quote we'll leave you with from Will Rogers. Lead your life so you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. And that's not a bad idea. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Will Rogers, born on this day in history in 1879. All of our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. <laughs>